Hi, this is Paula. And I'm Joseph, and you're listening to Life Lived Better. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode. Today we're going to be answering questions for counselors. Yeehaw, I'm so excited. I have a brand new class, actually two, that have given us some new questions to answer. I'm excited to get to do that today. Okay, Joseph, so question one. How do you approach your own mental health? And the follow-up is, and does going to therapy or counseling sessions and such feel redundant for you? So mental health-wise for me, I have shared, uh, I definitely am an advocate of therapy. I see my therapist every three weeks and um, definitely is something that helps me as far as having someone to kind of bounce things off of process. Um, I don't talk a lot about clients, but sometimes if I have a difficult, you know, client, I might share a little bit, get some feedback. Um, But mostly it's those sessions are for me and kind of how I'm processing, how I'm kind of managing just my day to day, because it is difficult listening to, you know, individuals share their problems and share their struggles. And I think we've talked about in past episodes that, you know, you have to have the ability to separate that. And in order to take care of yourself, you do have to have ways. um, And it doesn't just have to be therapy. But you know, exercise is another thing that I use, it's helpful, just really anything that is healthy, and can help kind of relieve not necessarily relieve, but just kind of sometimes just get me out of my headspace for a little while could just be watching a movie or, you know, watching a comedy special, just kind of laughing, just going out to dinner with a friend. So those are all kind of therapeutic things to me. So the second part of the question, does going to therapy or counseling feel redundant? Um, And I guess that means like being a therapist and also being in therapy, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. I think so. Um, And I I would say no. Short answer is no. (laughs) What about you? Much like you, you know, for my own mental health, I do many of the things that you're talking about. I have a therapist. I actually even attend a group and I've recently started seeing a life coach uh, just for one specific goal that I have. And I think anything you do to reduce stress could also be kind of looked at as things you do for your mental health. It is for me. So when you talked about exercise and all those things, I think that's kind of like also a stress reducer for me. That's also good for my mental health. I also garden, throw the ball with my dog, cuddle with my dog, you know, any of the things that makes me feel better. Mm. is good for my mental health. Now, the second part of that question there, just going to therapy or counseling seem redundant? No, just like you answered. No, it doesn't. Because when I am working with a client, I am not doing my own work. That's my job. And that is not my time to do my personal work. So it's not at all. Now, I will tell you when I go to counseling and someone asks me what I do for a living and I tell them I'm a, a counselor, they sometimes get like, oh, you know, worried about that. And I've had to tell counselors before, like when they say like, but I know you already know this. I tell them like, no, I don't, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't specifically know, you know, I might know in black and white what it means, but I'm coming to you because I need help in dealing with this specific thing. So just assume I don't know, you know, I think that leads nicely into our next question, which is, is there special certifications for therapists who have plans that are therapists themselves? That is a good lead in there. And there is not a special certification designation or anything, but most therapists 
who specialize in seeing therapists, it's just kind of word of mouth, mm. you know, people know, I know, I, I know a couple of therapists who I hear other people in my professional network say like, well, you should go see this person because she specializes in seeing therapists. I think they just have to have a special skill set. Number one, they have to be pretty secure in their knowledge that mm -hmm. who they're treating, like that doesn't intimidate them. Mm -hmm. I would say just like a doctor treating a doctor, you know, has to, he has to know, I know what I know and I do this very well. And so the fact that you are a, a therapist won't intimidate me. And I'll even probably have another skill set of being able to kind of drill through the BS that sometimes therapists can bring with them because they mm -hmm. know so much and they know the words to use, you know? Yeah. Okay, Joseph, the next question is what is a counselor's ultimate goal with a client? Is it just to sit and listen or to actually help with their goals, kind of like a mentor? Both of those things. I mean, I think you have to listen and through listening, you are able, or I am usually able to identify things that maybe should be addressed or should be worked on goals that, you know, when I meet with a client for the first time, for instance, we go through a complete and total history. And through that process, normally I'm making notes of different things that are coming up in that conversation that might be good things to kind of tackle during the sessions. Um, oftentimes clients, you know, come to therapy with an issue that they want to work on. Talking through that issue, maybe you discover that there are some other issues from, you know, childhood or some other traumas that you've experienced that then you want to probably work on as well. Definitely, I am looking for goals and things specifically, but I'm also working with the client to understand what their goal was coming in and helping them teach them, guide them to ways of being successful and meeting those goals through setting objectives, through making sure that they're measurable, they're attainable, they're realistic, um, just kind of education around that. So definitely both listening and setting goals, I would say is, is, a big part of counseling. Absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the first things we do with a client is to complete a pretty thorough assessment to determine what the issues are and what they want. Uh, it, it's really most important to find out what the client wants because mm -hmm. we can't, we can't want things for our client. Well, we can want things for our client, but they can't be the ultimate goal because no one's going to work toward a goal that isn't theirs that they aren't bought into a little bit. Right. So we kind of develop, you know, we develop a plan of action together. It's called a treatment plan, you know, based on what they want to get to, what their, uh, what their goal, what their goals are for them. And I think that's a, what you, one thing that you just mentioned as far as, you know, wanting things for them, that's something definitely, I've, I don't know if you've experienced this, I'm sure you have, but, you know, working with clients and hearing their stories and kind of knowing what we know, there are definite things that when they come up, they need to be addressed or, you know, we want them to be addressed at least because stepping back and looking at the big picture, we can see how this little piece here is affecting all these other pieces, but they may not see it. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's helping kind of educate them. And sometimes it's just sticking to what their focus is, you know, and not mm -hmm. about what we want or what we see. I'm always going to try to like point out those things when I see them. But like you said, ultimately, it's up to the client to invest in what they want to work on. And I think what you said beautifully answers the question, like, why would a person go to a counselor? I mean, you know, because we can see things that they can't see. And mm -hmm. everyone can see things about us that we can't see. You know, there's just like a, you know, in, in like the... Uh, 
Johari window, for example, it's called the blind spot. You know, it's the part that we just can't see it, but other people can see it. And it's a beautiful thing when we want to be a better person, when we have a person who can point those things out to us. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we really just don't see it. I tell people all the time, like if somebody asks you, are you okay? Is everything all right? And and you think that everything is fine. That's a great opportunity to learn something and to, you know, to ask, like, what are you seeing? Because like you just said, people will see it before we see it a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And so if you're willing to hear that or willing to, you're paying attention when somebody says something like that to you, instead of just saying, I'm fine, I'm okay, nothing's wrong. Asking them, what is it that you're seeing? I'm not aware of it. You know, it's an opportunity to kind of learn and grow a little bit. Mm -hmm. And if we have friends that we trust that can also provide us that feedback, I mean, it doesn't just have to be a therapist, but many times that's what causes arguments, you know, between Mm -hmm. friends or, or partners when they say, I'm seeing this thing. I mean, you really have to be in the kind of real friendship or, or partner situation where they, where you can trust someone to say what they're seeing and trust that they're doing it for your own, your benefit. Right. Okay. So we have a question. We have actually a couple of questions about anxiety and depression. So uh, the first question is, you know, can anxiety and depression be prevented and then what causes anxiety and depression? Lots of things I would say can cause it from, you know, a chemical issue. You're not producing the amount of serotonin or dopamine that you need in order to regulate your mental health. So it can be a chemical issue. It can also be environmental, dealing with um, family issues, dealing with the loss, dealing with a divorce, a breakup, um, anything like that, losing, losing a loved one, losing a pet. Like those are things that can lead to depression and anxiety. So as far as prevention, there's lots of different ways. We've covered a couple as far as like exercising, um, sometimes medication, you know, doing things like Paula said, where you can, you know, check out mentally in a healthy way. Um, any of those things, playing with your puppy, going for a walk, exercising, lots of lots of different ways to help prevent it. Um, I think just being aware of things that could lead to depression or things that can be triggering for your depression is something else to kind of um, just try to work on and be aware of because if any of those things are avoidable, then obviously you want to try to avoid when possible. Most importantly, I think it's if you try some of these things and you feel like it's just not working, then you take it to the next step of, you know, seeing, seeing a professional about it, be a therapist or a doctor. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I know there's still stigma with people taking medication, but medication for depression and anxiety is pretty normal. I mean, it, it isn't, it isn't unheard of anymore, you know, in, in today's world, medication for anxiety and depression is, is available. Even your own, your family doctor can prescribe that and, and often will. I think one thing, because I've, I've experienced anxiety and depression in my lifetime. And I know for me, one thing I forget is that I'm in control of my own thoughts and emotions. And If I just have a lot going on in my life that's overwhelming, reminding myself I don't have to think about it 24 hours a day is important because life is hard and a lot happens that makes life difficult. Those things are going to happen. So I have to have some tools to deal with it. I have to learn coping skills to deal with things when I get anxious to deal with things when I get depressed, but also giving myself permission to do something besides just focus on that all the time, because the problems aren't going away. And my rehashing them in my mind over and over doesn't help anything. Actually, it makes it worse. 
Mm-hmm. So I have to just kind of give myself that permission to check out and do something as long as I'm not avoiding it and denying right. it. Just saying like, you know what, this problem right here right now isn't going to go anywhere if I go outside and, uh, you know, do 30 minutes of gardening or do 30 minutes of tossing the ball with my dog or go to the park and walk a couple of miles. Those problems don't go anywhere. And I actually feel better. And, you know, when we do things that we, where we exercise, when exercise is part of one of the activities we do, it releases some of those good drugs in your head that actually is another coping skill, another coping tool. I think that this question goes well with another that that we had that was about, you know, how do you help? It was, the question was, you know, does counseling really help individuals overcome anxiety and depression and and what, what do counselors do? Kind of what techniques do they uh, use to help people with anxiety? I think my, my answer to that, my short answer is, does counseling really help? Absolutely. It does. Yes. Mm especially if you've got a good and the right counselor and the techniques we use are we, we teach people, you know, so we do a lot of educating in counseling. We teach people skills. We teach them coping skills. We teach them these things we're talking about. We talk Mm -hmm. to clients about what they can do. You know, what do they like to do? What, what helps, you know, we ask questions like, what have you tried in the past that has helped your anxiety? Or what have you tried in the past that has increased your anxiety? And when they give us those answers, we encourage them to begin doing the things that help and not doing the things that increase the anxiety or depression. And then we may have our own suggestions um, or tell them to do a little research. Um, It depends on the client, you know, but we teach clients skills that help them lower their anxiety and skills that help them combat depression. You said that beautifully. So I think the next couple of questions we have are kind of um, more focused on the addiction side. The first question is two-part. Why is the first step in addiction counseling to admit the issue? And then the second part is why is denial so prevalent in addiction? Yeah. So first, first of all, the first step in addiction counseling is not to admit the issue. That comes from a 12-step program. So AA, NA, a lot of the anonymous 12-step programs, the first step is admitting that you have a problem. It's not necessarily required in addiction counseling. However, in order to change anything, we have to see it as a problem. So that is, um, so it's important that we say that, yeah, this causes a problem in my life in order for us to change it. We aren't going to change something that we don't see as a problem. And the reason that denial is so prevalent in addiction, well, denial is a good coping skill. We, we have denial for a reason. It helps us to not experience the depth of something as great as it is. Even just like if you think of like grief, denial is one of the stages of degree of grief because denial is necessary. Denial keeps us from seeing something or feeling something so extreme that it's impossible for us to deal with. So when we look at denial with addiction, if you think about addiction, someone is engaging in a behavior that they can't control. They can't stop doing something that's hurting them, that's hurting people they love that's causing consequences in their life. So denial has to be part of that in order for them to just operate. Addiction is a real difficult situation when something is really out of your control and it drives your life. You have to have a little bit of denial in order to get up every day and live your life. 
because I think it would be a little overwhelming. I think also it's pretty prevalent in addiction because society still tells us how horrible and bad addiction is. Society also says that not only is addiction bad, but the person with the addiction is horrible, awful, and bad. So I, I think there's a lot of reasons denial kind of helps. So I think that's the reason that denial has to be part of addiction. I agree. I think denial is, you know, it's something that probably happens every day on some level. I immediately go to like speeding and thinking that, that we're not going to get caught or that there won't be consequences if we're caught. Like that's a form of denial to me. Um, but I think you said it perfectly that in addiction, there's so there's so much that goes into just a person struggling with an addiction, with the emotions and the you know, everything that happens physically, you know, mentally, emotionally, and denial absolutely is something that I think kicks in when we become overwhelmed or we become, you know, it becomes too much to handle. Like, like you said, it's a way for us to maybe break it down into smaller increments, you know, or make it a little bit more manageable than looking at this big, huge, you know, overwhelming thing. Denying parts of it can be a way of just getting through it. You said it can be a good thing. I think it can also be a bad thing, you know, and I think most people, when you think of the word denial, probably think it's not a good thing, um, but I think it does go, it can be good and bad. Um, it can be good in that it can help you deal with something large, big, overwhelming, bad, when it's just something that we practice as a form of the word that comes to mind is ignorance, you know, like, mm -hmm. you know, denying someone's belief or denying someone's existence or denying someone's feelings. Like those are things that are, could be hurtful and harmful when it comes to denial. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we have used the word denial in, in our language relating to counseling and psychology since the beginning, you know, Freud mm -hmm. is the one who, who was the first one who looked at defense mechanisms and denial was one of the defense mechanisms. So you're absolutely right. Any kind of coping skill can be good or bad, mm -hmm. even exercise. We talk a lot about it and promote it a lot. It is a good, good thing for our body, but sure. It can be negative too. any, anything can be negative or positive depending on how we use it. So absolutely a person with a denial of their addiction, there's a real negative side to that too, because if they're not seeing what everyone else can see, you know, they can stay in their addiction a lot longer and they can do a lot more destruction to themselves and to others. So uh, another question about addiction here is what's the most successful way to help someone with their addiction? And I don't know if this question is asked as a professional, how we can help someone with their addiction, or if just as a friend or a loved one. So perhaps if you could look at that from either way. From a professional standpoint, I would say helping clients, again, establish those goals, um, understanding how it's impacting their lives, what areas of their life it's impacting understanding, you know, the trust and everything that kind of gets broken down when you're active in your addiction, how to kind of repair some of that. Um, and I think that's a big part of being successful uh, in recovery is, you know, understanding what the problems are, what the issues are, kind of prioritizing those things, and then kind of working on those. As a family member or a friend, I'm going to really strongly encourage people to seek help um, to go to therapy, to go to one of those 12-step programs. I'm going to help them find resources. I'm going to, you know, probably be willing to sit there while they make those phone calls even. Um, but just basically anything I can do to help them get to 
some kind of get access to some kind of support um, in order to start again identifying what those problems are and how to tackle them. I do know here I mean, further in the question, uh, the person asking the question does mention that that they understand addiction is kind of a constant everyday struggle, but they want to help in some way. One of the things I want to make sure that I say in this um, answer is you cannot control a person's addiction. You cannot control that they have an addiction. You cannot control whether they seek help for their addiction Mm -hmm. or once they seek help and are in recovery, you can't control that they stay in recovery as much as it hurts to see a loved one struggle with an addiction. And as much as we can do like offering the resources, offering the support, we, we can't make them change. We can't make them stay in, in recovery. And, and I think it's also important to recognize addiction is a pretty powerful thing. If you love someone that has an addiction, you can offer them all the support possible to get them the resources, but I would encourage you, this is my personal eh, slash somewhat professional opinion, not to totally cut them out of your life because of their addiction. I I know that in the eighties and nineties, it was popular. You know, they called it tough love to just say, if you use drugs again, you're no longer my child. You're out of here. You're whatever. I think, I personally think that's the wrong thing to do. I think that, um, You close the door on a person, which means they have less to get into recovery for. You can definitely set some strong boundaries so you aren't enabling their addiction, so you're not paying for their substances, so you're not paying their rent, so they have no consequences. Uh, But I definitely would leave, always leave kind of the door cracked a little bit that you're always, you're still there, that you're still, uh, you're still going to support them, that if they are ready to get help, if they uh, need something, you know, so, so they always have that relationship with you as, as something that, uh, so they know that you love them so that they know that you support them. You know, with it being a constant struggle, I I think that's something that people know on some level, but there's also, I think, a misconception that once you go to treatment, everything is better and everything is healed and, you know, that's the end. And that's not the case. It is something for most people that will be work that they have to do for the rest of their lives. The work gets easier, you know, it gets less but it's, it's something that, you know, you carry around for your life, in my opinion. Absolutely. And I want to encourage people that it does get easier. You know, you, you, uh, it isn't a constant struggle every day forever. You know, right. that that's the good news. What I can tell you, I'm, I'm pretty certain about is that many people, and I think we have gotten to the point in our profession where we can even say a majority of the people, a high percentage, more than 50% of people with addiction have some kind of traumatic experience or experiences in their background, something pretty painful that causes substances to be a viable solution, something that's painful enough that they need to numb the pain. And until they can have the opportunity to work on and work through those things and get some resolution, using substances will always be an option. It will always be a viable option. You know, so I think people that get into recovery, whether they do it in treatment or not, you know, when they get into recovery, they need to begin working on the issues and a person that just stops using or just stops drinking and not 
and doesn't work on the issues, I think their their chances of staying in recovery are low. I think it, they're definitely lower. I think a mm-hmm. person that works on the issues and gets some resolution definitely has a higher chance at long-term recovery. Right. That's kind of like addiction as a, oftentimes a symptom of, you know, a bigger issue. I, I agree. I think so. I think that uh, this final question we have about addiction is a good continuation of the conversation we've already been having. You know, what motivates people to overcome their addiction? Why would a person get into recovery? Oh, that's a good question. I think um, there's lots of lots of different reasons. Sometimes people experience, you know, that what oftentimes is referred to as a rock bottom. They have nowhere to go, you know, and they decide to seek help. Sometimes it's pushed by family and friends and loved ones. I think you can go to treatment for someone. You can be in treatment for someone. Does it work when you're doing it for someone? I don't know. I personally think that you know, you have to arrive at a place just like with anything that you realize that it's a problem. You realize that it's something that is, you know, disrupting your life and you want to make changes to that. Yeah, I think there does. I mean, there often is some sort of consequence going on because of the addiction uh, that causes a person to seek change, to go to treatment, to go to a meeting for the first time. You know, people don't often get into recovery because everything's going great. Right. Um, substances work and they work for a while. And when things, when it's working, no one usually stops using. Mm-hmm. I think it's when it stops working and the consequences outweigh the payoff is often when people are most willing to seek help of some kind and to get into recovery. So I think the motivation is different for everyone. You know, maybe it's a, maybe it's a, threat of a job loss. Maybe it's a a new baby. Maybe it's a a family member who they don't want to lose a relationship with. There's, there are motivators that are just different depending on who the person is. And, and they continue in recovery because the recovery is a payoff. You know, Uh, the recovery Mm -hmm. is better than the numbing that happens when you use a substance. And I think that's the reason a person needs to continue to do the work. They need to continue to heal what was causing the need to numb to begin with. Right. Absolutely. And that work is oftentimes work that takes time and it happens in stages. And, you know, it's kind of like an onion, you're peeling back layer after layer after layer, and you just have to be committed to the process. And I, I, I tell clients all the time, you know, I ask them like, what, what positive has come from not using, not drinking? You know, what have you seen that's improved and try to really focus on, you know, specific areas that have gotten better and just trying to encourage them to continue to make good choices. Because when you make good choices, you get, you know, positive results. Typically, I know sometimes when people stop kind of engaging in bad behaviors, there's a period where things just kind of like catch up and it seems like you're getting hit from a lot of different angles and, you know, coming up against a lot of different really hard things, you know, really difficult things to manage, but that passes and you get into that period recovery. Sometimes I refer to it as the pink cloud where you're you're kind of in a really great place and you're feeling really positive. And, and that's something that I think comes with good choices and comes with making those changes and sticking with those changes, being consistent and implementing all those things that help the meetings, the therapy, the doctors, you know, whatever it is that helps you get to that place. Absolutely. And you have to keep doing the things that help mm-hmm. you. Yeah. You know, we can't stop them. 
or they will stop working. So but true. I appreciate all the questions and we always welcome questions in our inbox. If you just go to our website at www.lifelivedbetter.net, anyone can ask us questions about anything. Right. And you can email us directly at info at lifelivedbetter.net. You can also reach us through Facebook. Do it. And don't forget that knowledge leads to a life lived better. Thank you for listening to Life Lived Better with Paula and Joseph. 